0: Not long ago, Corey was driving home with his girlfriend, Dominique, from his job with the Chicago Transit Authority. He's a painter for them. When somebody spray paints graffiti on a subway stop, he's the guy who paints over it. He's 26, she's 22. So they're driving home.
1: And um, a truck pulled on the side of me, and a guy was, like, gesturing. You know, I looked to the side, and the guy was, like, gesturing. But my window was up. I didn't know what he was saying. So by this time, the light turned green, and we both, you know, went forward. And I'm just looking like, like, what?
0: They wrote on the window, and from that point, things happen pretty quickly. The guy curses at him and throws a beer can, which actually comes through the window and lands inside, spilling beer on Dominique. Cory throws one of those sample-sized paint cans back at the guy. And then the other car, a gray SUV, starts to follow Corey and Dominique. Cory tries to lose him, making turns, driving through a parking lot. Here's Dominique.
2: I'm looking in my um, side mirror, and I'm like, they're still behind us. I couldn't believe that they were still behind us after we've cut to a you know went down a side street and come up through the back of the mall and we're going through the parking lot and I just couldn't believe that they were still behind us at this point I'm getting scared real scared I'm like oh my god Cory they're still behind us they're still behind us and he's like okay just calm down calm down
1: backstreet 135th street that's when we heard you know the gunshots so then I just figured I'd go through the project area Because I just figured whoever's shooting they're not gonna come, you know, go through the project area. Maybe they just, you know, turn off or whatever. So when I turn, I hear some more gunshots, and that's when I hear the back window bust out. I can hear Dominique screaming, and it's like I can just see a flash of light. The bullet had came through the back window.
3: It's
1: like I don't know. It just it was. It seemed like a movie. I mean. It was like it was smoke. I could see people running. It was a guy on a motorcycle in front of me, and he takes off. I could just see people running, like, in the headlights, and uh, I just take off right behind him.
0: This is probably as good a place as any to tell you who was chasing them. They were being pursued by five white, off-duty police officers from the Cook County Sheriff's Office who had been drinking at a cocktail fundraiser for the sheriff, and then after that at a bar. They were not in uniform. Lawyers for the officers declined our request for interviews, but we do have a recording of them made the night of the shootings when they called 911 from their SUV on a cell phone. General emergency,
4: TC-14. Yeah, I've been on the phone. I've been in chase with pursuit. I'm an off-duty police officer. Where's everybody at?
0: This is Officer Robert Jones telling two different 911 dispatchers that he's in pursuit of a vehicle and they should send backup.
4: We are at 159 and cab Z. 159th end 159th and Kedzie. What kind of car is it? 159th and Kedzie. We are following a uh, gray Chevy Blazer. Gray Chevy Blazer.
0: Actually, they're following a tan Ford Explorer. They're in a gray Chevy.
4: We are northbound. Northbound. Northbound Kedzie from 159. Northbound Kedzie from 159. Okay. All right. Northbound Kedzie 159. Okay. All right. Your from, from
2: 159. Okay, sir. We are approaching sir, sir, sir. At no point sir. did we know that they were police officers. They could have been anyone.
1: I didn't know, you know, what they were after or whatever. It is not like I would have just pulled over and said, okay, why are you following me? In this day and age, why would you pull over? Everything's going on in the world. I'm going to pull over and see why you, you know, why are you
0: following me? Although there were five officers in the car following him, on the 911 tape, Officer Jones gets the number wrong a couple times, saying there are six officers, or seven. Their side of it is this. They say they were chasing a reckless driver, and that they only started shooting after somebody shot at them. No gun was found in Corey Simmons' car. He denies having a gun. But listening on the 911 tape, it does seem possible that the officers thought they heard shots, even if none had been fired.
4: Yeah, we have seven off-duty police officers in our car. Okay. One, uh, <laughs> shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired! Shots fired, sir, Shots fired! Where are you at, sir? We are in. We
3: are
0: elsewhere on the tape. You hear nine, the nine, officers in the background nine, laughing and saying, "Boom! Boom! Boom!" Eight, nine, nine, nine. And then there's this when they pull into an alley in pursuit.
4: It Zip it around. You kill a light. Kill a light. They're gonna try to block us out of here. <laughs> no. F- them. Drive right around. Knock them the f-ers off the road. He might have turned right there.
0: Some time passes.
4: Kill him! Kill him! Hello? Yes. We have f***ing guns.
0: The chase ended when Corey and Dominique finally spotted a police station and ran inside, saying somebody was chasing them, trying to kill them. When the officers were brought in, they first denied firing their guns. But of course there were bullet holes in Corey's car, so the police were asked to turn over their guns for ballistic tests to see if they'd been fired. Dominique and Corey say that at first, they refused. And when the police came to trial on charges of attempted murder, aggravated discharge of a firearm, official misconduct, and obstruction of justice, the judge said that they had only been guilty of bad judgment, that there wasn't enough evidence to convict them on any of the charges. Even though the five officers were drinking and using their guns and firing a gun from a moving vehicle, both of those things in violation of department rules, they weren't even convicted of official misconduct. The judge in your case said... If I could sentence these officers to wear red noses for the bozos they are, I would do that. But I can't do that. What did you think of that?
1: Uh, it was a stupid thing to say for a judge. I mean, he's supposed to be intelligent, right? It was a stupid thing to say. Very stupid thing to say. The guys are for attempt murder, and you call him a bozo. Uh, bozo was a clown. He played with kids. He's just grown men shooting at people, trying to kill him. Here, I do everything right that they say you're supposed to do, and I'm getting, you know, shot at like I'm some type of criminal or something like that. I just think that they were wrong. I can't say it's all cops, you know. I just think that they were wrong, and I think race did have something to do with it. I think if I was white, that we wouldn't be sitting here. I don't think that it would have happened if I was white, you know, if they would have been shooting at me or saying that they thought maybe I was dirty or had a warrant or a gun on me and that's why I didn't want to pull over.
0: Corey says he's heard of police brutality of course but he never thought something like this could happen to him driving home from work one night. And one of the interesting things about this story is what a non-story it is. Here in Chicago where the whole thing happened it's made the paper a few times but there is no big public uproar. It's not the subject of speeches. You don't see politicians on TV backpedaling and prevaricating. It's not made national news at all, as far as we can tell. Five cops go drinking and shoot at a middle-class black couple, whatever.
5: It always kind of sticks out in my mind when we have these kinds of cases is that there is not the same level of outrage, not only for the public, but for the victims themselves.
0: Tiffany Ferguson is one of the lawyers who's going to represent Corey Ferguson and Dominique Mapp in a civil suit against the police.
5: We, we have all sorts of clients in the office, of course. And when people contact our office and it's a person who is white, who has been victimized, their level of outrage, I can't describe to you, but they feel so violated. How could this have happened to me? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm following the law. I haven't done anything wrong. And we're talking about something as minor as getting a traffic ticket that they shouldn't have gotten, and they're ready to sue everybody. When it happens to someone black, and this is my opinion, oftentimes the person feels like this is terrible, but this is my life. This is kind of the cards I've been dealt. And so that level of outrage, it's almost like you have to remind the victim that you know this is insane that you have to deal with this, that this is you know completely violative of your rights.
0: Welcome from WBEZ Chicago, the Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, High Speed Chase. We bring you not one, no, no, but two, two stories of high speed car chases and the law. Actually, I guess it's kind of a special law and order edition of our program. Um, You'll hear the crime and you'll hear how the justice system dealt with the crime. Yes, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate and equally important groups the police who investigate crimes, and the public radio reporters who interview them after the fact. These are their stories. Stay with us. Let's call this Act Two, Cowboys and Indians. In this act, another high-speed chase, though the participants in this particular chase began running after each other across the plains and deserts of this country long before the invention of automobiles. I'm talking about Native Americans and white people. In South Dakota, after all of these years, the two groups are still not getting along. Things are so bad that some people compare race relations in the state to Mississippi in 1960. And last fall, after a high school girls' basketball game, an incident between a group of Native American girls and a group of white boys escalated to the points where shots were fired from a speeding car. What happened in the months that followed did not seem fair to either side. Susan Burton tells the story.
6: Basketball is big just about everywhere in South Dakota. It's big in small towns, big on Indian reservations, and there are plenty of parents from both places who never miss a game. On November 1st, Lucille Weaselbear drove five hours from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to a small town called Miller to see her daughter Arlene play in the district finals. Miller seemed like a typical small town, railroad tracks at one end, a Dairy Queen at the other, Lucille surveyed the one long main street, parked outside the armory, and went straight in.
7: The first thing I look for is a good spot up in the bleachers because I do a lot of videotaping. And then so I found me one, and then there was some Indian women that sat by me. But when they sat down, this lady said, did they tell you where to sit when you came in the gym? And the other lady said, no. And she said, well, when I came in, they told me Indians on that side and white people on that side and I heard that and I was like gee you know who would say that you know they could say chieftains on that side and Spartans or whatever they call them on that side but you know Indians on this side and whatever.
6: Tonight the Crow Creek Chieftains were playing the Wessington Springs Spartans and it was a big game. The winner would have a shot at making state. The loser season would be over. The trouble began as the Crow Creek players entered the gym. Jessica Squirrelcoat is the team's MVP. The kind of girl who people talk about as if she's famous, an honor student, strikingly pretty with long black hair to her waist.
8: And as we were running out, we came out our side, we came under their hoop, we went by the Westington Springs fans area. And as soon as we went by the area, we heard. So when I we heard those war whooping, I looked at them, I was like, is right now starting, beginning of the game. I'm like how you how you see it on like cartoons. That's how you hear it
6: from the stands. Lucille heard the war whoops, too. This happens every so often at basketball games, and it's disturbing.
7: I noticed way on the left side across the gym floor a group of um, non-Indians. You know, they're a group of white kids. And I noticed when our girls came running in how they were war whooping and hollering and, and, you know, dancing right there, right where they were standing at their bleacher, like turning around and just... But I never thought... You know, I see that, but, you know, I think that, well, gee, if they want to live that
6: way, that's them, you know. On the video of the game, you see the silver flash of pom poms. You see Wessington Springs' best player racing down the court, her blonde ponytail flopping behind her. You see Jessica shooting three pointers. You can't hear any racial remarks, but she and the other Crow Creek players insist they were said. Near the end of the third quarter, Jessica and the girl with the blonde ponytail collided. Together they stumbled into the wall. The other girl fell to the floor and lay very still. It looked like she'd hit hard and was hurt. A foul was called. The mood in the gym got worse. There was booing. The blonde girl got up. Jessica stepped away from the wall and went to line up next to Lucille's daughter, whose nickname is Chubb. As Chubb and Jessica passed the Westington Springs fans, Jessica heard somebody yell something at her.
8: She's dirty. She's a dirty Indian. She got her dirty. I just looked at Chubb's and she looked at me. She she smiled at me. She's like, don't pay attention. Don't pay attention. I was like, I know. I'm not even trying.
9: And then that girl went through the free throw line.
6: This is Jessica's mother, Jenny.
9: And she was bent over, bouncing the ball, getting ready to do her free throw. And Jessica went up to her, and I think she said something like, Are you okay? Because it seemed to settle the atmosphere down. And Jessica pulled back, you know, behind the players that were all lined up for the free throw line. the The game, Cold Creek had possession, and it was like, 14 seconds, I don't know. They gave the ball to Jessie. She attempted the shot to go up, and just like that, they grabbed it out of her hands. Within seven seconds, the girl took it down the court and made a shot at the buzzer. Westington Springs won. Jessie collapsed to the floor, and she was crying. Her arms folded underneath her face, and she was just sobbing. And I couldn't get her off the floor. I halfway got down, and I was holding her.
6: Westington Springs had won the district finals by two points. The Crow Creek girls collapsed exactly where they were when the buzzer sounded, mid-court, under the net. Outside the gym, the night was starry and cool. Parents got into their cars and followed the Crow Creek bus up to the Dairy Queen for dinner. There were 30 or so Native Americans inside. Smells like Indians, a girl from Crow Creek heard someone remark. Jessica ordered a double cheeseburger and a strawberry banana smoothie. The Crow Creek players say they kept being served hamburgers that only had bottom buns. They say that when they complained, they were told, Are you sure you're not just eating the top bun and bringing it back? Crow Creek is a boarding school and Jessica and Arlene had permission to ride back to campus in their friend's pickup. There were six girls in the car. They cracked a couple windows to get some air, smoke a cigarette. They drove south down the main street, and a few blocks later, they came to a vacant lot. It seemed like a hangout spot. There were cars there, eight or so boys standing outside them. At this point, accounts differ. The boys say they said nothing. The girls say they could see the boys flipping them off under the streetlights. They say they heard them swearing at them. One girl says she heard a racial epithet. Jessica tells the rest of the story with her uncle, Jake Thompson, the vice chairman of the Sisseton-Wapiton Sioux Tribe, who later called for a federal civil rights investigation into the events surrounding this night.
10: They looked at each other. Did you hear this? Did, did you hear what I heard? They left, and a decision was made to go around the block.
8: They're like, just go back, see what they said, make sure we heard what we heard.
10: So they took a right, went down the block, Came back in front of the same spot, see if this is what they had heard. And they heard it again.
6: Jessica sat in the back seat, holding her smoothie. She says she heard the boys swear at them again. In reaction, she passed the smoothie to the front of the car.
8: Like, here, throw this at them. I was like, yeah, yeah, throw it at them. So everyone was like, all agreeing with it. So she, when we, we were just kind of going by slow, she showed on her window, and then she threw it out, and it just went all over.
6: The smoothie hit a white car. Two of the boys jumped inside of it and peeled out of the lot. The girls sped down the main street, bouncing over the railroad tracks on their way out of town. Now there were two cars from the parking lot chasing them. At times, they were going almost 90 miles an hour. Then the white car swerved out alongside the girls, and one of the boys thrust a shotgun out of the passenger window. They've got a gun, the girl screamed. Go back to town, go back to Dairy Queen.
10: And what happens next is unbelievable. You you just don't hear these things. Even in South Dakota, after a basketball game, there was four shotgun blasts shot from the car.
8: that's when Chubb said, get down, get down. And that's when we had that back window cracked and heard four shots. They sound like little firecrackers.
6: The girls were on the floor. They heard the shots, but nothing hit the car. Go, go, they screamed to the driver. She raced through Miller, running lights. Finally, she made it to Dairy Queen. The Crow Creek Chieftain's bus was still there. Their parents were still inside.
10: They are beside themselves. They pull up in the parking lot. And that car pulled up, the one who had the shotgun and did the firing, pulled up next to them. Five of them exit out and... They make it inside, scared for their lives.
6: This left one girl still stuck in the car.
10: She couldn't get her seatbelt unfastened. The two men, the two boys, rather, inside the uh, the car have the shotgun on their laps. She sees the barrel of the shotgun. It's raised a little bit. And they tell her, Go home, leave, you effin' Indian, you effin' prairie nigger. She gets her seatbelt unfastened, makes it to the glass doors of the uh, Dairy Queen and she goes to the bathroom on her She was so scared.
8: I don't know, I was in shock. I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to think. The only thought I had was like, oh my God, they have a gun, and they, they went to that extreme to bring a gun into it. Like, it was just from a smoothie, just from throwing that, and I was just like, just shocked.
6: The two boys deny making any racial remarks. The girl who was stuck in her seatbelt went to the restroom and locked herself in. Her aunt and her cousin shut themselves in there with her. Most everyone else watched the windows, waiting for the police to arrive.
10: What the people inside did not know is that these boys had went straight to their home, left the shotgun there, then went to the police station and told them that these girls had threw some ice cream at their car so they should uh, look into this.
6: Ten minutes after the boys made their vandalism report, the police department got a call from Dairy Queen about the shooting. An officer arrived, and as he began to talk to the girls, the white car returned to the parking lot. People pointed and shouted, do something, stop those boys, they're the ones that did this.
10: The police officer doesn't know what to think. He turns around, tells the car to stay right, right there. Don't move, the car leaves.
6: The officer set out after the boys. People hovered in the entryway, making cell phone calls. The news was starting to spread. Some kids back at Crow Creek heard the shooting report on their police scanners. Two women who worked at Dairy Queen took the girls to the police department. They wrote brief statements. Later, much was made of the fact that they didn't mention the racial slurs in their statements. They only mentioned the shooting. But the main reason for the omission was that their coach was in a hurry to get them home, and the girls weren't instructed on exactly what needed to be in their accounts. The boys were found and questioned, and then the night was over. The girls drove back to school in their pickup, and the boys went home with their parents. They had not been arrested. Nobody had been injured. The case would be under investigation. The people in Miller felt that something bad had happened in their community that night, something that never should have happened. But for them, it was an isolated incident. But on the reservation, From that very first night when the police decided not to arrest the boys, the shooting was seen as symbolic of the way justice operates in South Dakota. The system doesn't take crimes against Indians seriously, they say, and punishes them more harshly than it does whites. 1,500 people live in Miller. On the day I visit... A high wind screams down the main street, lifting hundreds of soda cans out of a collection bin.
11: Our caseload sort of runs the gamut.
6: Jim Jones is the Hand County State's attorney. He was in charge of prosecuting the Crow Creek case.
11: We have our DWIs, our underage consumptions, our burglaries, lots of traffic offenses. Um, The last time we had a shot fired, to my knowledge... In Miller, on one of our public streets was probably four or five years ago, a couple guys got in a tangle, I guess it was on First East First Street. But that's the last time that I can think of that anybody fired a shot in, in anger on one of our city streets. This is highly unusual.
6: Jim Jones is meticulous and focused. He smokes long cigarettes called ligats and exhales in tidy rings. He's 48 years old and has lived his entire life in Han County. He started working on the Crow Creek case the morning after the shooting. He had the handwritten statements the girls had given to the police. He had the ones from the Miller boys. No one had said a thing about racial remarks.
11: I think it was the next day or perhaps two days after November 1st, a television station came to town and asked me whether or not our office viewed the events as having been racially motivated. Uh, And I said, well, based upon what I've got in front of me here, I don't see it as racial in nature.
6: Racism isn't something people in Hand County deal with much, because there's basically just one race here. The Chieftain basketball team drove in from the county next door.
11: We are, oddly enough, according to the recent census statistics, one of the ten most racially unmixed populations uh, in the nation. The ten most Caucasian counties in the nation uh, include Hand County. And so race relations have not been uh, a problem in this community, at least in the 18 years I've been state's attorney.
6: The South Dakota press quickly picked up news of the incident. Some stories implied that people in Miller weren't taking the crime as seriously as they should.
11: All of the publicity was extremely negative. The Miller Police Department, my office, the state's attorney's office, the court system, Uh, most of those persons or entities that I just mentioned were painted with a broad brush, uh, as racist, prejudiced, incompetent, unwilling to see reality. We were all excoriated.
6: Jim Jones has a folder of all the articles in front of us on his desk. He starts to flip through them and try to find parts to read, but gets so frustrated that he shuts the folder. He thinks the stories make him look like he didn't know how to handle this case, that he didn't care about getting justice for the Native American girls. He says the press reports made things especially awkward for him with the Crow Creek girls and their families. It's hard enough to cross from one world to another in South Dakota. Some Indians say that living conditions on the reservations get worse as you drive west in South Dakota, and Pine Ridge is the westernmost reservation in the state. But its radio station, Keeley FM, makes Pine Ridge seem a lot less bleak. It broadcasts everything from country songs to powwow music to the names of the children who are graduating from the Little Wound School's kindergarten class.
7: Congratulations to Tristan Apple, Tyler Harrybird, Ace Old Horse,
4: Autumn Little White Man, Ellen Little White Man, Brandon Little White Man,
7: Tammy Wounded Head, and Phil Zimiga Jr. This message is brought to you by the Little Wound School and Kiwi fm Radio, the voice of the Lakota Nation. Kind of small. These houses are
6: kind of small, but they they work. Arlene Weaselbear not only plays power forward on the Crow Creek basketball team, she's an MVP in golf and wrestles well well enough to have gone with the team to Tokyo. She has five sisters, and and in the living room, a a large collection of awards and photographs adorns the walls. A basketball magic marker with her nickname, Chubb, sits on top of the TV. Being in this room is like standing inside a scrapbook. There are Head Start graduation photos and prom pictures. Then, amidst all the medals, Arlene's mom, Lucille, points out a newspaper clipping. Okay, and this was in the Lakota Journal,
7: uh, like a um, Native American newspaper. But um, this is really something the parents of the Crow Creek Tribal School girls basketball players are wondering if their children need to wear bulletproof vests when venturing off the reservation for sports.
6: This was the second time something traumatic happened to Arlene when she left the reservation for a basketball game. The first time was during a tournament several years ago when a white woman said that Arlene was a boy and her team should be disqualified. Someone took Arlene and a couple of her teammates into a stall in the bathroom and checked. Arlene's mother and some other parents took legal action, but the case was thrown out of court. This year, after the incident in Miller, Arlene and the other girls all had a tough time recovering. The girl who couldn't unbuckle her seatbelt in the Dairy Queen parking lot is still so upset that she doesn't want to talk to me on tape. Jessica's mother says that Jessica's personality changed. Jessica was the Crow Creek homecoming queen. She has so many friends that people say she's doing one of the seven rites of the Sioux nation, making relatives. That after Miller, she'd stay in her dorm room, just lie in her bed and listen to her powwow CDs. She'd pray with her medicine bundle, which she made a couple years ago, after she felt a sharp pain in her leg, like someone was using bad medicine on her, when she came down from making a layup during a basketball game. After the basketball game in Miller, Arlene went back to the dorms at Crow Creek. But she started calling home more than usual. A couple weeks later, she came for a visit and announced that she didn't want to go back to school, and she didn't want to talk about the incident.
2: I never told nobody my feelings about it.
6: I tried, but I can't, it can't come out. When she came home, her dad took her out back and taught her to shoot a gun. He thought it might relieve her anger, but it just gave her flashbacks of hiding on the floor of the car. Arlene left the clothes from the Miller night in the laundry basket for three weeks. Eventually she started wearing them again, but not together. The pants with a different shirt and the shirt with a different pants. At home, Arlene's mom told her, whenever you're ready, come and talk. But Arlene was silent, and she refused to leave the house.
2: I didn't want to see no white people. I just stayed home. My sister asked me to go to movies, but I didn't go with her because I would see white people. I didn't like white people.
6: For two weeks, Arlene sat on the couch. Maybe she'd quit school. Maybe she'd quit basketball, which seemed to make white people hate you even more. Then one night she headed out in the car.
2: I left and I went and sat on a hill of back there, and it's like a big old hill. You could see everything, like all the houses. You see everything there. I just sat up there and I was just thinking how we got treated, and I don't know how they how they think why people think they should be the only ones on this earth. I just I thought it'd make it make everyone feel better if we weren't here if I was. Uh, but then I thought how my family was suffering. So, I didn't. I came home. I think it was about
7: 2:30 in the morning.
6: This is Arlene's mom, Lucille.
7: And I was asleep, you know, right here and she just told me, you know, mom, I'm ready, so I said, "Let's go." And so we went outside and um we stood there, and and I remember it was really a kind of a cold night, and the stars are really bright, and then I just asked her to tell me.
6: Arlene and Lucille talked about how she wanted to kill herself, quit school, never wanted to play ball again. And by the morning, Arlene believed that she was stronger than the awful thing that happened, and she was ready to go back to school. Lucille told her she couldn't let that one boy take everything away. She taught her a lesson a lot of Native American mothers teach their children. You can't let racism ruin your life, but it exists, and you have to be practical about it.
9: We teach our children, when you go shopping anywhere, just because we're Native American, you do not have anything on you that does not have a receipt.
6: Again, Jessica's mother, Jenny.
9: I teach my children to always do the best that they can with their abilities, but if there's ever a selection and there's a non-Indian involved that even though you're the most qualified, chances are you might not get selected just because you're Native. So, you build them up, but yet you put insecurities in their minds.
6: For the Native Americans, this is the context for the shooting. Lucille tells me about a host of racial incidents where there was a comment or a look against her or one of her girls. Some whites in South Dakota believe that Native Americans get everything from the government for free, including their houses, which of course isn't true.
7: One time I went into Family Thrift Center in Rapid City, and we went through line, and I said, "Um, can I have dry ice for my meat?" And she said, "Um, there's a fee for it." So I said, "Oh, okay." I said, "I n- I never knew they charged for you know dry ice." And she said, "Well, you can't expect everything free." So I said, "You know." I was going to pay for it, I didn't know, you know, I never knew I was charged for it. And I kind of looked at my surroundings and then there was some white people behind me and I I felt really embarrassed, you know, this lady and I I started thinking about, you know, I work so hard, I have a job and, and everything and I didn't know and I just went off on her. Are you saying that because I'm Native American because a lot of them do get free things? And told her that, you know, there are some Indians that work, and I'm one of them. I don't appreciate you saying that to me.
0: Coming up, white kids in the town of Miller explain how the Indians have it all wrong about the night of the shooting. In a minute, from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life. i Glass. Each week in a program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, High Speed Chase. Susan Burton's story about South Dakota continues.
6: In Miller, it's hard to get the teenagers to talk about the Crow Creek incident. Most of them are sensitive about the way their town has been portrayed. One girl tells me that because of the internet, people all over the United States probably think Miller is a racist town. And we're not racist, they tell me. The chief of police says that after the stories started appearing in the paper, the teenage witnesses he interviewed would just clam up when he got to the race questions, just not say anything at all. Because the boys are juveniles, their names haven't been published in the press, and they're not talking to reporters. Their lawyers did not return repeated phone calls. The teenagers in Miller are very protective of them. Many won't say the names. But every teenager in Miller knows why that one boy fired a shotgun.
12: I know the reason that he did it is he was drunk and... I mean, that's not an excuse to shoot a gun or anything, but his car is his baby, and they threw a milkshake right at it. You know, And as far as I'm concerned, they were asking for something. You know, they were just asking for a good butt-whooping. I mean, if you saw a really sexy race
6: car and you threw a milkshake at it, of course you'd be expecting the owner to be a little bit torqued. The boy was famous for taking care of his car. It's a Buick sports car with a bra on it, and he paid for it himself. The explanation is related with fervor by all the teenagers. This is honestly how they see it. Even teenagers who are sympathetic to the Crow Creek girls, like Nicole, high school junior.
12: I mean, who wouldn't be scared if a gun was being fired? And the only thing that could be crossed into your mind is that, oh my God, I might be shot or I might die. And I mean, who wouldn't be scared of that? But then again, I mean, they they can't put all the blame on us because they were the ones that, the milkshake on the car and set that boy off, because that boy is very, I don't know, he likes to take care of his car a lot. He doesn't even like water being thrown on it, because he's afraid that the water is going to leave spots on his window. I mean, who wouldn't get mad if there a milkshake, which milkshake was just being thrown out of the car?
6: In a sense, the disagreement over what happened that night is a dispute over where the story begins. And for the teenagers of Miller, the story begins right there. It starts the moment the smoothie smacks down on the car. The teenagers all tell me how the newspapers and the Native Americans started bringing things into it, the war whoops, the racial remarks. They thought this was adding parts to the story that didn't make sense. They just don't see any connection between the racial remarks and the high-speed chase. Most of the Miller teenagers don't even believe that their crowd-made racial remarks that night. One of the teenagers who does is Jennifer. She's 16 and was working at Dairy Queen the night of the shooting. If anything, she says, the racial comments went both ways. I wasn't there at the basketball game, but I can't say how it was. But I know,
13: actually, one of my friends did get commented on being racist. I mean, not racist, but having a white racist term yelled at her. And so she yelled one back. And so I think it was like 50-50. She was walking by the stands and she got called, I think, white trash or something like that. And she was mad and angry. So I'm maybe I don't see the term she used. Actually never heard of it until she was telling me the story. I'm like, oh. What term is
6: it?
13: It was prairie nigger. I don't think she feels bad. Because she got called at first, you know, and if that person doesn't really feel bad, then why should she?
12: When the reservation teams come down here, there is a lot of tension.
6: This is Candace. She's 16 and wore a coat with a faux fur collar. She's the only teenager I talked to who wore thrift store type clothes, like kids in the city wear. We've
12: had to have kids get kicked out because of saying indian or prairie nigger and stuff like that they were raised with it their parents taught them just i mean they didn't may not have said you don't have to i don't think that you have to say well indians are evil don't go near them they're just taking our money you know that's that's the big thing around here is that's another comment that was made of games that had indians there they'd say Oh, you shouldn't even be playing on our damn court because we're paying
6: for your shoes. Or we're paying for your uniforms. Candace has lived in Miller for three years now. But before this, she lived in a lot of other places. Her family moved 20 times before she was five, she says. It was because of her dad. He wasn't in the army. He was in the New Age movement. He believed he was an alien from outer space come to save
12: humans, us, from the bad aliens who are in cahoots with the government, selling dead bodies for more technology and he was building spaceships in our garage and going on spaceship meetings and spaceship trips with his friends and we moved around a lot because he was, I think we were running from the law. I think the most I remember about him was watching uh, Star Trek with him and eating popcorn. That's all I
6: remember. Candace likes Miller. She says there are good people here. Not everyone says bad stuff at basketball games. Candace sees the tensions that do come up as part of an ongoing history. It's the whole cowboy versus Indian thing,
12: you know? I mean, Custer and all that other crap that happened, you know, wounded knee. That stuff is hardcore. Cowboys, I mean, I'm talking the works. They got their, when they work, they put on those chaps and everything. I mean, they go cattle driving, they brand there it's cowboy 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 I mean everybody the kids too in school cowboy boots uh, big old huge belt buckles that take up half their stomach uh the cowboys in my town are they do not like Indians they will let you know it and uh they don't like black people they like white people who work. They even have a problem with me sometimes because I'm a little eccentric for the people around here. You know, I wear, I wear weird clothes from the city, and that even, even that will freak them out. If you're not the traditional, it's all about tradition. If you're not the traditional, they don't like it at all.
6: If there's a frontier mentality at some South Dakota high schools, Frontier country is looking more and more like it used to. Native prairie grass is growing over abandoned farmland. There are more buffalo on the plains than at any time since the 1870s. And the population is shrinking, enough so that the region meets the 19th century Census Bureau definition of frontier. Six people or fewer per square mile. South Dakota,
14: like a lot of this region, is on the white side, getting older.
6: Jennifer Ring is the only ACLU staffer for two states. North Dakota and South Dakota.
14: The folks are leaving the farm, so you have an aging white population and a thinning white population. At the same time, the Native American population is very young. They have a higher birth rate, and their kids tend much more to stay in the state. And that means that as time goes on, power really is shifting.
6: The 2000 census showed some rural counties losing 10 to 20% of their population in a decade, while the number of Native Americans in the state grew 23%. It's hard to say exactly what that means, since Native Americans have probably been severely undercounted in previous years. But the changing demographics are dramatic in some communities right near the reservations, border towns. Some of the ACLU's current voting rights cases involve efforts by whites to block the new influence of Native Americans in local elections, like for school boards. But some of the biggest complaints are with the criminal justice system. In the past few years, there have been a handful of deaths the Native community feels haven't been taken seriously by law enforcement. They feel that racial profiling is rampant, that they're punished more harshly than whites. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission looked into all this a couple years ago. They invited Native Americans and others to come to a holiday inn and tell their stories. Dozens showed up.
14: Not everybody could speak at the hearing. They had people taking testimony off to the side from all these people. And the committee report was absolutely scathing about Native Americans in the South Dakota justice system. The chairman of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission said that this was worse than anything she was seeing in L.A. or any of those places. There was clear, pervasive, overwhelming lack of faith in the Justice Department by the community and that that needed to be addressed. Unfortunately, rather than try and address that seriously the governor of South Dakota dismissed it.
6: Governor William Janklow claimed the hearings weren't a true portrait and commissioned his own study to figure out exactly what was going on. Its release has been delayed. The problem seems even worse when you consider the fact that, according to a 1999 Justice Department study, American Indians are more likely to be the victims of interracial violence than any other race and more than 60% of the time, the aggressor is a white person. In comparison, blacks are victimized by whites about 12% of the time.
1: It would be hard to find anybody in this community that was sympathetic to what they did.
6: Sheriff Doug DeBoer from Miller.
1: At least I haven't seen any. They were all either quite embarrassed or quite angry about what happened.
6: When it came time for the Miller boys to be punished, the people of Miller wanted Crow Creek to know that they took the crime seriously. The state's attorney, Jim Jones, charged the boys with aggravated assault and petitioned to transfer them to adult court, where they could face up to 90 years in prison. But he and the police did not see the crime as part of a larger pattern of interracial violence. Chief of Police Ernie Sterling ran the investigation.
14: Maybe for the Native American population, similar things have happened elsewhere enough that they feel justified in saying, This is the trend. This is the way we get treated when we go somewhere else. Maybe that's the case. I personally don't have any knowledge of that. All I can speak about is here in Miller, South Dakota, where I've worked since 1979, this has never happened before.
6: In the end, the police investigation couldn't prove that the two boys in the car were the ones who made racial remarks back on the side of the road or at the game. So like most of the town... State's attorney Jim Jones concluded that this was not a racially motivated incident.
11: I think to the extent that there was anything racially offensive offered by either of those kids at any juncture that night, and I underline the word if, uh, I'm very sorry that that happened. But I think uttering racially offensive epithets would have been evidence of dumb decision-making. I think chasing those girls at high speeds and discharging a weapon out the window was evidence of bad decision-making. I don't think the two are related any more than they are evidence that the decision-makers have made a series of bad decisions.
6: The judge declined to try the boys as adults which is what happens under South Dakota law if a teenager seems like he can be rehabilitated in the juvenile system. But for Jessica and Arlene, this decision just seemed to confirm that the crime wasn't being taken seriously. Here's Arlene. Like, so many times they delayed it. I really didn't
2: care for it. I was like, they ain't gonna get nothing done. I, like, they didn't care. I thought they was like, oh, they're Indians, just forget about it. I thought they were thinking that.
6: Hearing that the legal system didn't consider this a racially motivated incident just made things worse. Now Jessica figured that the boys would just get probation. She no longer had any confidence that the court system was going to handle things right. She even felt like her own high school was trying to pretend that what happened wasn't so bad. At one point, Jessica, the homecoming queen, almost walked out of a boys' basketball game, at which Crow Creek and Westington Springs attempted to make peace.
8: Before the boys actually played, they called each student council to the floor and they made choose that hopefully everything will be resolved and I was just sitting up there in the crowd I was like you guys this has been happening to you guys for how many years and you guys are just gonna call it choose and let everything's go it's always gonna be there and there's it's not nothing you guys can say or do to say it's gonna be okay it's always gonna be there
6: The County Courthouse is the grandest building in Miller. Inside there are marble columns and a stained glass dome. As you climb the stairs, it's like you're entering another time, when people were making up the rules of the country. On the morning of the boys' hearing, every single person in the courtroom is white. There are other cases first, mostly drinking offenses. A 19-year-old in Levi's refuses to say where he got the beer, and gets 10 days in jail. The court reporter blows her bangs off her face. Jim Jones rises to respond to the judge's queries. And then suddenly the sheriff pushes open the door, and Jessica and Arlene and their mothers and several others walk into the room. The attention shifts. People edge around, trying to see what the Native Americans in their courtroom are doing here. And then it just starts into motion, a regular case on the list. This will not be a trial. The boys have entered a guilty plea, and the judge will just give them their sentences. A boy with spiky hair appears, and the proceedings begin. His lawyer spends a lot of time talking about the car. The boy's very protective of it, and has been upset when it's been paintballed in the past. The lawyer says that the boy has never been in trouble before. The boy stands and mumbles, I would just like to tell the court and everybody involved in this incident that I'm really sorry, and I regret it every day of my life. That's it. Then Judge John Erickson begins. In every lie, there's an element of truth, he says. The truth is you went around the girls, but it wasn't to avoid smashing into them as you said in your statement, but rather to cut them off. The truth is you went to the police station, but the impression that you're trying to give here today, that you were going to be truthful about this, is not true. I don't see any remorse. I don't see that you're a bit contrite. Judge Erickson names more parts of the boy's story he doesn't believe. He chastises him for his behavior, and he continues. If I read the news reports correctly, there are some who say the only way to be fair in this case, the only way to do justice, is to punish you harshly. If I thought for one moment that by treating you harshly I could cure racism in this state, I would probably do so. If I thought for one moment that could cure the years of distrust between Indians and whites in this country, I would do so. But fortunately for you, I can't do that. Instead, I'm required to make a reasoned judgment. In South Dakota, a judge can either give juveniles probation or send them to juvenile detention. The judge chose the more severe option for both boys, the Department of Corrections. Just before the proceedings ended, Jim Jones announced that there were victims and their families present and asked if any of them would like to approach the bench.
7: I raised my hand and I'm like, can I, do I stay here? Do I sit here and talk or or what do I do? Here's Arlene's mother, Lucille. I didn't want to do something wrong, you know, where I might where the judge might make a comment to me or anything, and then then he just told me to approach the bench, and I was like, you you mean go up there? But I sat down, and I looked, and I seen all the people in the courtroom, and I'm like, oh, dear. I looked at Arlene, and then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to blink everybody up. And then that's what I did.
6: Lucille sat in the witness chair, swiveling a little from side to side. She focused on one of the boys who'd been in juvenile corrections before. She told him that she didn't feel sorry for him, that she didn't think he felt sorry for the girls. She said that he'd had all these chances to better himself, to improve. She said he should have been obedient to his parents. Lucille looked at the boy's mother.
7: She kind of had her head down, but she was looking at me, you know, um, on the side of her eye. Um, In our culture, we have minimum eye contact if we stare or tend to look at someone for a period of time then it becomes disrespectful and I know that like in the white man's world eye contact is important like it shows interest and that day I went in there um, on his terms you know so I was gonna stare because I don't have respect for them anyway.
11: She was just brutally honest.
6: Again, the state's attorney, Jim Jones.
11: I mean, she turned to these kids and she says, look what kind of an impact you have had on the lives of these six girls. How can you look at yourself in the mirror and think that you have not wreaked havoc with these girls' personal lives? If you find yourself in a cell, I want you to spend some time thinking about the impact your idiotic decision that night has had on the lives of others.
7: I kinda thought about all the things that happen, even to me as a little, you know, the racism and, and how we're mistreated. And sometimes the justice system or the non-Indians tend to say, oh, they exaggerate. But um, it's not exaggerating.
6: Arlene was crying when her mother spoke. I didn't think she was gonna
2: go off like that. It's pretty happy because my mom is the only one that got up and talked. <laughs> it, made me, it made me feel cool that she really cares.
6: The girls and their families felt like the hearing was a success, that this time, the justice system took a crime as seriously as they did. They liked the things the judge said when he scolded the boys, and they were glad that the people in the room heard the Indian point of view from Lucille. They told me about so many cases where things never seemed to get resolved fairly, and bad feelings lingered. But this was settled. They could put it behind them. After the hearing, Lucille hugged her daughters.
7: They're descendants of um, Sitting Bull, and Sitting Bull was a really uh, great chief. And one of the things I always keep in mind from some of the things that he's said is um, like if there's, I can't really recall the whole thing, but he talks about how if the white man leaves something good, pick it up and use it. And then if he leaves something bad, then then leave it where it is. So I kind of like that. I kind of like that, you know, little statement that Sitting Bull made. And I think I left that bad thing in the courtroom. (laughs)
6: The people on the reservation and the people in Miller never came to agree on where the story began. But for Lucille and her daughters, here's where it ended. They got in their car and drove to Crow Creek. They went to the casino and ate cheese balls and folded Arlene's graduation announcements. The girls joked with the waiter. They didn't even talk about court.
0: Susan Burton lives in New York.
3: Empty saddles in the old corral Where do you ride tonight? Are you rounding up the doggies, the strays of long ago? Are you on the trail of buffalo? Empty saddles in the old corral Where do you ride tonight? Are there rustlers on the border Or a band of Navajo? Are you heading for the Alamo? Hey.
0: Our program was produced today by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Wendy Doran, Starley Kine, senior producer Julie Snyder, contributing editors Susan Burton, Rebecca Carroll, Jack Hit, Margie and Elise spiegel Pawtuff, Nancy Updike, and Consulary Sarah Val. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Chris Neary. Susan Burton's story was produced with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Special thanks today to Tiffany Ferguson, Andre Grant, John Gorman, and Martin Snyder. To buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380, or visit our website, where you can also listen to our programs for free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life comes to you from the city of Chicago, Richard M. Daley Mayer. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, I want you to be absolutely clear about his location at all times.
4: 157, 157, 159. We okay, are sure. approaching. Sure. Sure. Sure.
0: sure, I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Dust, where do you walk
3: tonight? Empty saddles in the old corral. My tears would be dry tonight If you'll only say I'm lonely As you carry my old hand Empty saddles in the old